Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. Each week, we dig into God's Word, trusting that the Holy Spirit will continue the good work of sanctification in us. Several months back, when we were going through the Ten Commandments, I drew out how several of the Ten Commandments, and really Genesis and Exodus on a, as a whole, Spend, out, uh, spend a lot of time pointing out the idea of a distinction between the creator and his creation. For example, the easy one. In the first commandment, we saw that God is the creator and that he alone is worthy of worship. And in the pagan worship of their neighbors, the Israelites saw that there was not a distinction between the creator and his creation. In paganism, all is one. There is no God who is outside of the creation. Instead, everything is summed together into one. There isn't this creator-creation distinction. Now, the truth of the triune God who is outside of his creation and is all-powerful and and he created everything that we see by the power of his word, this is a truth that leads us to worship God. We acknowledge that there is a God and that he is alone worthy of glory and praise. But this really runs against our ingrained sinful desire to be praised ourselves. We want glory. We want it for ourselves. We want to be the ones who are sovereign. We don't want a sovereign over us. We want to be sovereign. Now, while most people would never say, I want to be God, most people would never have those words leave their mouths. But, in our lives. We want to decide what's right. We want to decide what's wrong. We want to be in control. And we see this in our world everywhere, right? There's a desire to have autonomy, to be in control, to be the one who is sovereign over ourselves, who is sovereign over everything under our control. And we can see this in many areas of our culture. But the most convicting part of this is the fact that this is something that we all struggle with daily in our lives. We want to be sovereign. We want autonomy from God. But as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I take those struggles, we acknowledge them, and we leave them at the foot of the cross. We understand that we are not gods and that it is God alone who determines truth. It's God who determines what is sinful. And our confession of sin and our repentance of that sin acknowledges that truth at the most personal and at the most basic level. Because when we do that, we forfeit praise to ourselves and instead surrender our own glory And we offer praise to God alone for what he has done to rescue us from sin, death, and hell. And so as we drop into Psalm 115 this morning, 
we find a statement of praise that acknowledges that the triune God, Yahweh, is the only one who is worthy of glory. And we see this in verse one of chapter 115. The very first words of this psalm are exactly what we expect to find in a psalm of praise. Here we have them. They offer praise to God. This is what we expect. Praise the Lord. Give glory to his name. These words offer praise to God, but notice that it also blatantly diverts praise away from us as humans. As I mentioned, this is hard for us. It goes against our natural desires to have our name glorified. We desire acknowledgement. We want praise for our accomplishments. But the psalmist gives us a true, correct attitude here. And we notice here, as we look at this psalm, that we see something that we observe, have observed several times as we've been in different psalms this summer. There is repetition here to drive home the point. The phrase, not to us, is used twice. So the psalm moves the emphasis away from humanity and ascribes praise to the name of the Lord. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. There's repetition there, intentional to drive home the point that we don't deserve glory, but God does. The emphasis is away from us. It is his name that is to be, to be praised. It's not our name that's to be praised, not the name of our family, not the name of our nation, but the name of the one who is over all things, over everything. It is his name that is to be praised. And as we've seen in the Psalms many times so far, the praise that we are to ascribe to Yahweh isn't just praise that we're to give because he is over all things. Of course, the power and majesty of God are enough reason to praise him. He deserves praise for those things. But the Psalms so often point out for us the most beautiful part of the character of God, and that is his steadfast love and his faithfulness. We've all known someone who is rather impressive on the surface, right? They seem to have everything going for them. Maybe they are exceptionally attractive. People seem to flock to them. And then you meet them. And they just aren't very nice. And even though you maybe admired them from afar, as you've gotten closer, you don't really want to even get to know them better at all. They're not very nice. You maybe in the past saw this person from afar and you wanted to be their friend, but now that you have gotten to know them, you're not sure that you want any kind of a relationship with them because their character, as you've gotten closer to them, has shown to be not very good. But God isn't like that, is he? His majesty and his power that we see from afar, it shows us how amazing he is. And, and we acknowledge this. But as we get to know God, as we see more than his holiness and his power, and we see his character as it's revealed in his word, we find out that he's a God who loves his people with a steadfast love that's beyond compare. 
He is a covenant-keeping God who is faithful to his people, even though his people are covenant breakers. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, I just love that the Psalms are, in the, are smack dab in the middle of our Bibles because it causes us to look back to the stories beforehand and show us the covenant faithfulness of God in everything that's happened before the Psalms, but the Psalms also point us forward to what is to come in Jesus. The Psalms being in the middle of the Bible help us to understand the faithfulness of God in the past and the expectation of that faithfulness going forward. Here in this psalm, the psalmist looks back on the story of the people of God and he knows that they've broken covenant with God and yet God's love has been steadfast to his people. And so the psalmist also has this trust that God's faithfulness in his promises is going to continue. God is a covenant-keeping God who has great steadfast love and faithfulness. And as this psalm continues, one of the reasons that we see that this God is steadfast in his faithfulness is that he's not like the gods of the nations that are the neighbors of the Hebrews. Look at verses two and three. Now I've already brought up the first commandment, thinking back on this creator-creation distinction this morning, but now I want us to recall the second commandment as we look at these words. Because it seems here, as we look at them, that their pagan neighbors don't really understand their worship. They don't get the worship of the Hebrews. They ask, where is their God? Now, as I read this initially, and maybe you were thinking the same thing, I actually thought back to some of the other Psalms we've looked at this summer and thought that the statement that was being made here was similar to some of those statements we've seen previously. If you'll remember back, those statements were statements in the midst of the suffering of the psalmists. People were sort of mocking them and saying, you're suffering, but yet you believe in this God? Where is he now? Now, like I said, I initially thought that that's what this statement was, but then I kept on reading. That's not the context here. Remember the second commandment. No images are to be used in worship. And this also is an important thing that we need to remember as we look at this context here of being idolatry. There's to be nothing here that is used in worship. Why is that? Again, that creator-creation distinction. Because God can't be represented by the physical stuff of his creation. Because God is other. But this difference that this second commandment would have caused to be between the worship of the Hebrews and the worship of the pagans in the ancient Near East would have caused this question here to be asked. Where is their God? And it's a logical question if you're an ancient Near Eastern pagan. So the Hebrews, we hear they have a God. We hear his name is Yahweh. And they worship him. Tell me, what does he look like? How do they worship him? If they have a God, why don't they have an idol made of, of silver or, or gold or wood or rock? 
Where is their God? I heard they have a God. Where, where is he? And I hope you love the answer in verse three here as much as I do. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now what an answer to the pagan nations who are asking this question. Where is our God? Where's our God? Well, he isn't sitting at Joe's house on the mantle above the fireplace. We'll tell you that much. There's more to him than that. There isn't a big statue of our God in the middle of the village either. He, he can't only uh, not be represented in that way, but he also can't be confined by your human ideas and by your limitations. And he most assuredly isn't subjected to you and to your demands. Our God is in the heavens. And this statement is saying that our God isn't one with all of creation. Instead, he is above it all. Again, that creator-creation distinction that is so important. And here it is also saying that our God is above earthly authorities and that he does all that he pleases. He isn't moved about by human powers. He isn't subject to human desires. He is sovereign. He's in control. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does what he pleases. And so this psalm continues and it decimates. I mean, it absolutely destroys the gods of those who are asking this question, asking where the God of the Hebrews is. And so it starts here with the ideas that their idols are just made of materials of the earth and simply creations of the people. We see this in verse four. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. And as valuable as gold and silver are, they're just stuff that comes out of the ground. Yahweh is other. He is not material. He is separate from the creation and can't be represented by any part of it. And not only does the makeup of these idols matter here, but how they are made is pointed out by the psalmist. A human had to not only dig up the material out of the earth to make their idols, but their hands had to melt it. Their hands had to mold it. Some guy had to carve it. But Yahweh is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's in the heavens. He can't be represented by material from the earth, and no fallen human can mold or carve what he looks like. He does what he pleases, and he's not shaped by human hands in any way. He's different. And so for the next several verses, the psalmist makes a scathing argument by repeating the idea of the inability of the idols to do anything. We see this in verses five and seven. There's this repetition of the inability of their idols. The idols have a mouth on them, but, but no sound comes out of them. They even have eyes, but those eyes are blind. The ears that were carved on them, they can't hear. Their noses can't smell. Their hand can't feel. And the feet that they have, uh, they don't do anything but keep them from tipping over. And they probably don't even do that very well. They don't move at all. There's no sound that comes from their throats. And this idea here is repeated six times with the same basic formula. One time 
The first argument, they have mouths but don't speak, that's enough. That is a scathing argument. But to do it six times drives home the point here and completely decimates the idolatry of their neighbors. And the reason this is so powerful is because it turned, it is, this argument is not only used on the idols, but it is turned towards the idolaters themselves, the ones who make them and the ones who worship them. We see that in verse 8. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And the point being driven home is that those who craft the idols and those who bow down before them, they are going to have mouths that won't speak to. They'll have ears that don't hear, eyes that don't see, noses that don't smell, hands that don't feel. They are going to have feet that don't walk. In other words, idolaters are brought to nothing because they have no hope. The implication behind what the psalmist is saying here is that those who trust in Yahweh do have hope. The God who is in the heavens offers hope. He does what he pleases, and he has the power to keep his people and to give them life. But the path set before idolaters is nothing but death and the grave and silence. And with that in mind, the psalmist calls for the people of God not to be like the surrounding nations. We see this in verses 9 through 11. The natural result of making ruin of the gods of the surrounding nations is now to call those who are the people of God to trust in the Lord, the one who has called them by name, the one who has made them a people. And as we look at this call for them here to turn to the Lord, we see a set of verses that is not only poetic in nature as we read them, but as I read this, it also comes across as rather liturgical as well. This is clearly a song and a prayer to be used in the worship of God. And as we read it, you kind of get a sense of the corporate use of this, how this would have been used by the people together. Because first, Israel as a whole is called to trust in the Lord, and then there is a response. Then the priests are called to trust in the Lord, and then the same response. Then everyone who fears Yahweh is called to trust in him, and once again, we get the same response. He is their help and their shield. You can almost hear this as a responsive reading, right? Oh, Israel, he is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, he is their help and their shield. You get the idea here. There's a, there's a sense of worshiping together corporately in this. In your mind, you can actually think about this, and you can probably imagine people throughout the ages doing this as a call and a response to the worship of God, down from the time the psalm was written up to the modern times. It just flows that way. In the face of temptations to trust in anyone but God, the people of God call to one another to trust in the one who can actually help them, trust in the one who is their shield. We don't only do this for ourselves. We call one another to trust in the Lord. 
because he is our help, he is our shield. Turn to him instead of idols. Trust in the one who is our refuge and our strength. And then the poetic devices continue for us into the next couple of verses as we look at verses 12 and 13 because the psalmist remembers the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. God blesses his people. He remembers them. And so when the three previously stated groups, Israel, the priests, and all who trust in the Lord, we see that God is going to bless them. He will bless the people of Israel. He will bless the priests. He will bless all who fear the Lord, the small and the great. It doesn't matter what your status is. If you trust in God alone and ascribe praise to him above all, you are blessed. And the main points we've been considering are repeated again in this psalm. And I, I want to take a quick look at how this is done how it's used here in the psalm before we close up and consider our application as we look at verses 16 through 18. At the beginning of this psalm, what did we see? We saw the contrast between the idols and the God of Israel, the one who is in the heavens and does what he pleases. And so the psalmist recalls our minds to that comparison once again and acknowledges that the things of the earth are given to men But without the Lord, there is no hope in those things. We remember the God who is in the heavens from the beginning of the psalm. But those who trust in the things of men, there's no hope. And we see this because the psalmist keeps going back to this idea that those who worship the silent and motionless idols will become like them. Because he says the dead don't praise the Lord. And so the call on the people of God is to bless the Lord with our mouths because we aren't worshiping silent idols. We are worshiping the God who has spoken blessings over his people, so we speak to him. We are to trust that God is even able to make his people continue to praise beyond when we go down to the grave. There is hope here that because we do not worship silent idols who can't hear us, Because we worship Yahweh, he is going to give his people a voice of praise, not just now, but forever, that we might praise his name and he would hear. And he is able to save because he is other. He is powerful. He is the one who is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And he pleases to rescue his people, and he has done so for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is fitting that this psalm ends with the words, praise the Lord, because he is worthy of the praise that we bring to him. He is worthy of praise because he rescues his people. And as we consider our application from this passage, one thing here comes through clearly for us, doesn't it? We have a choice. We can trust in ourselves and the things of this earth, but those things are going to fail. It is only the God who is in the heavens, the God who does all that he pleases. It is only him who is worthy, not only of our praise, but of our allegiance and our devotion as well. Each day, 
You and I are tempted to put our trust in the things of this world, the things that fade. We just need a few more dollars. We just need a new relationship. We need a new medical advancement or anything that that we believe will bring us happiness that will give us fulfillment. But those things are all things of the earth, just like the idols of the ancient pagans that the psalmist is talking about. Sure, we can see these things, and so it's easy for us to pursue those things. It's easy for us to think that those material things that we go after can provide for us because they're attainable, they're in front of us, but they are just the stuff of the earth. And all of the stuff of the earth is either headed for the grave or the landfill. It's all going there. And so the psalmist is clear. Those who pursue the things of the earth become like those things that they pursue. So what are we going to pursue? Our hearts are shaped by what we run after. So may we listen to the words of the psalmist here in Psalm 115, and may we run after the Lord. May we trust in him. May we be daily convicted of those things that we pursue that are not of God. And may we instead trust in the one that is eternal, our God who is in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. Because the Lord is our help and our shield. Not the pleasures, not the things of this life. They are not our help and our shield. The Lord is. So may you and I rise each day with the words of this psalm resonating through our minds. And may it come out of our mouths. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. May we pursue him knowing that he's the one who causes us to praise his name from this time forth and forevermore because he is the one who will last. Our pursual of him means something. It does not end in the landfill or in the grave. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ, our pursuing him brings glory to his name and we get to enjoy him forever. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, we praise you for the gift of your word. That in it we see that there are things so much greater than the stuff, the material of this world. For we know that all of those things ends up in the grave or in the landfill. But you are in the heavens. You do all that you please and we thank you that you have pleased to save a people for yourself, that Christ took on our flesh and came and rescued us, and so may we continually turn to you, trusting in his work, and may we turn aside from any glory for ourselves, but instead may we chase after you, giving praise to you for who you are and for what you have done for your people. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon. 
For more information about First Reformed Church, head to our Facebook page or website, edgertonfrc.org.